Hi, everyone. Welcome. This is Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital, Trinity Health of New England. Welcome to Medically Speaking. I hope that you've had a good week so far and um, you are enjoying our fall. We are in the autumnal spirit now, moving into into fall, which, you know, is a time when people like to get outside again and enjoy that beautiful fresh air and, and really just take advantage of our beautiful foliage that we have here in Connecticut. And you know, with that, sometimes we have to realize that, you know, sometimes people get into situations when they're enjoying this beautiful weather and they're out and about and, you know, they could be driving a little bit too fast or out on their motorcycles and not wearing their helmets. And, you know, that's led us to our conversation tonight. And I have with me tonight, Dr. Karina Biggs. She is the med- trauma medical director for the Department of Surgery at St. Mary's Hospital and Trinity Health of New England. Hi, Doc. Hello, good evening. How are you? Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Well, thank you so much for having me. Oh, absolutely. You know, we you've come back to St. Mary's Hospital back in June, I think you came back, right? To this That's area? Correct. Yes. So a little bit of history on you so that everyone um, knows kind of what your journey has been. So you are board certified in general surgery, but also surgical critical care. Um, you have extensive experience in trauma care, and you're incredibly passionate about sharing your wealth of knowledge with our residency programs, which is amazing for us. And Doc, you've also spent a lot of time in New York as an attending surgeon, and you were the Director of Trauma and Surgical Education for the Division of Trauma and Surgical Critical Care at Kings County Hospital. Um, You were also Chief of Trauma at SICU and Trauma Medical Director at South Nassau Communities Hospital and Chief of Trauma and SIU at Wyckoff Heights Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. That's a mouthful. You've you've been a very busy woman. Yes. But one of the things I like to call attention to, because you know that when the when we've met in the past, I'm so excited to say that you were one of our residents at St. Mary's back in the day. That's correct. I finished my residency at St. Mary's in nineteen ninety seven and then I went to New York, to Chicago, back to New York, and then I just came back again, uh I think it's been about twenty two years. Uh, to St. Mary's in this June, about two months ago. And uh, I'm very happy to be back here. We are so blessed to have you come back in this direction. I mean, and, you know, within your role, there's a lot of things that you need to do um, as a trauma director. I mean, you, you know, you oversee our quality and process improvement for trauma care. You serve as a liaison for the EMS, fire, and police departments, which I think is incredible. And we'll talk a little bit more about that because I don't think people understand the role of a trauma director and what that means. Um, And, you know, you make sure that we, as a level two trauma center, meet all those necessary requirements. Yes. It's a huge job. So, you know, let's focus on for yourself first before we get into it. Why did you get involved in trauma medicine? What was your passion to do that? I mean, I I, I always, I loved being a surgical resident. uh, Mm. And what I particularly liked was being in the emergency room and being in the operating room and being in the intensive care unit. Mm. And uh, I, I just like taking care of people who are injured. And I like working with other people who do the same. And you're incredibly passionate, which we'll get to later in the program, about 
community education and community outreach. And I don't think people real put that those two things together, a trauma director and that avenue. Well, it's, it's the responsibility of uh, a trauma program mm. and a trauma center to do outreach in the community to try to avert uh, future incidences of trauma and try to reduce injuries in the community. So how do we become a trauma center? What is the job of a trauma center? Okay. Well, a, a trauma center is uh, a hospital that it has uh, a, a certain these criteria. It's required that there be uh, emergency medicine physicians and nurses available 24-7. It also requires that within 15 minutes, uh, a trauma surgeon and a team of surgical residents are in the emergency room for any major trauma. Those are the two major criteria. Uh, however, a lot, a lot more is involved than that. It requires uh, an operating room staff, which is also available within 15 minutes, 24 hours a day, including weekends and holidays. And St. Mary's Hospital provides that. We also have many other physicians in different specialties who come in at night, come in on weekends to do uh, uh, something for an injured patient. We have a very good radiologist who will come in on, at night or on the weekends to do minimally invasive procedures, which might avoid an operation. Mm -hmm. We have neurosurgeons, head and neck surgeons, uh, very good orthopedic surgeons who are available 24 hours a day as well. So our hospital is able to provide 24-hour care for the people in the Waterbury community. You know, it's so important to educate the community that that being a trauma center, they know that if something happens to them, a family member or a friend, that they can feel safe to come to a center that has all of these resources. Yes, yes. And that's what St. Mary's Hospital uh, has aimed and has been very successful in providing now for the past 15 years in terms of trauma care. What it, when we talk about a level two trauma, there's levels to trauma center. Can we talk a yes. little bit about what that means? Sure, sure. Um, a level one trauma center um, has uh, quite extensive resources. They have a uh, uh, certain times of time types of physicians who are available um, physically available 24 7 at the bedside and that includes neurosurgery um, also it, level one trauma centers are actively involved in research mm. and are required to publish in the peer-reviewed literature now our hospital we our department of surgery is also very active in research but we don't yet have the numbers of trauma publications that a level one trauma center has and we are a level two so what does that mean in terms of uh the clinical management of a trauma patient, level one and level two trauma centers are, are fairly equal. Um, level one trauma centers have uh, a larger number of trauma surgeons. Um, they often have an intensive care unit, which is dedicated only to trauma patients. Mm -hmm. Our intensive care unit at St. Mary's Hospital has a mixture of trauma patients, um, other surgical patients who need intensive care and other medical patients who have intensive care. So we take care of all of those people in the same facility and in the same unit.
And you, you know, you've come back to St. Mary's and, you know, what are some of the things that you feel that you've been able to invoke and change as you've gotten here? What have you seen that you've been able to have some wins? First first of all, I have to say that I've really been astounded by the progress that many of my colleagues have made. Um, Dr. Abdul Zarif, who has been trauma medical director for several years, has done incredible work with Roxanne Tapley, who is our trauma coordinator. So uh, a lot of the work has actually already been done, and I feel very lucky to walk into a a very well-staffed, well-running trauma center. That said, there are things that we would like to develop further and to develop into a, a broader trauma center. And one of those things that uh, I'm, we do as, as a group is, is outreach to our community. Mm. For example, we're teaching a course called Stop the Bleed. And this is a course that everyone in the Waterbury area is uh, welcome to participate in. It's a one-hour course which teaches, how, teaches people how to stop bleeding in an austere environment. And an austere environment can be something as, you know, as tragic as a terrorist attack, but it can also be something like a, a car crash mm-hmm. or some type of accident uh, at a barbecue where someone cuts themselves. The most common cause of death in a trauma person is blood loss. And most people who die of traumatic injuries die before they get to a hospital. So what we are trying to teach our community is techniques of how to use a tourniquet, how to, how to hold pressure on a wound as a patient is being transported to a hospital in order to uh, avoid massive blood loss. And this has been shown to increase, uh, increase survival. And that's a that's a national program, isn't it? Stop the bleed. That's correct. Absolutely, it was actually started by Dr. Uh, Jacobs at uh, Hartford Hospital, hmm. and in conjunction with the American College of Surgeons, after the the, the tragic event that happened at Sandy Hook, hmm. and the American College of Surgeons, which is the national organization that uh, we we look to for many different aspects of surgical care, um, has made this international program where many trauma centers are doing this outreach to the community in a very similar way that uh, teaching cardiopulmonary resuscitation is done in the past. So how is that information getting out to the general public to get them to participate? Well, one is uh, I'm saying it to you right now on your radio show. Mm. Um, Two, we've had flyers uh, around our hospital. We've been a little bit limited because of the pandemic. So we've been, we've uh, started by training various members uh, of, um, of who work in the hospital and not, uh, not only people who are uh, clinically involved in patient care, but many other people who do very important work in our hospital. And as soon as the restrictions are uh, a bit lightened, which hopefully will be soon, uh, this course will be offered to all members of the community. We have taught the course to some uh, high school students and to uh, some other people who, in circumstances where we could just uh, do the safely with social distancing. Absolutely. You know, every time I see and hear about this program, it brings me back many years ago to when I was a teenager, my husband, of course, at the time we were young kids dating, I think he was about 16 years old. And one of they were, he was at a neighbor's house and one of the, his friends fell through, he tripped and he fell through a glass 
sliding door and severed his arm. And I'll just never forget my husband was just traumatized, but he held that arm in place and the kid never lost his arm. It was amazing. It was a miracle. But, you know, yeah. I think about that and I'm like, oh my God, he had the wherewithal to just hold pressure. And if we could share that with young people and adults everywhere, it's just such an important thing. He saved his arm. Yes. Absolutely. You know, it's just, I think that, you know, especially people come on the scene of an accident or whatever, what you can do to help someone um, is, it could save their life, could save a limb and their yes. life, right? Yes, that's, that's true. Now, you partner a bit, and I want to get back to some more of our community pieces, but you partner as a liaison for the EMS fire and police departments. How does that work? Well, we have um, reached out and I've met with the uh, people who are uh, working and running EMS for the Waterbury area. And what we have started working on with them is uh, understanding what limitations they might have Mm. in uh, transporting patients to uh, our trauma center and making things easier for them in a general sense. And what's very important is making sure that they understand that they're very much a part of the trauma team. They're not separate um, people from our hospital. We consider them part of our trauma service. Absolutely. And we have the helipad also, which plays into, you know, a lot of what comes our way or what we need to navigate out. That's that's correct. Yes. And how do you make that determination when a patient can be transported out and does can it happen at the time at the site when the ems calls you before the patient Uh, gets typically typically uh, it happens that decision is made after a patient uh, after a person is evaluated in our emergency Mm. department and our state uh has some has an organization called lifestar which is a group of highly highly trained uh, uh clinical workers who um in with us make a determination of whether or not uh, a person should be transported by air or by land. And that has many considerations. It has to do with weather, traffic, and the urgency with, with which uh, a person needs to be transported. How, how does it, you know, how does it affect the team um, when a patient comes in? What happens when a patient comes in and they, okay. they call a trauma? How does that work? Okay. What is the flow? Well, Good. Generally, we get notification by uh, our EMS service uh, when they're either at the scene or en route to the hospital. Mm. And we, uh, they are very good at communicating basic things such as the mechanism in which the person was injured. Uh, they communicate vital signs. They communicate their level of alertness and uh, the injuries that they, that they find on their initial exam. Mm. So as the person is being brought to the hospital, uh, there are, um, all of our cell phones goes off. There's an overhead uh, page that goes off so that everyone on the trauma team is alerted. So that trauma team involves uh, an emergency medicine physician, a group of uh, nurses in the emergency department. Uh, We have a general surgery residency program, and we generally have two to three residents who are physically in the hospital who uh, are arriving within the first 15 minutes. Mm. There is an attending surgeon available on call, and it is a requirement that that attending surgeon arrive within 15 minutes, and that is all documented and followed very closely. Mm. So generally, 
before a person arrives, this team can already be available. There are people already available. The anesthesiologist is notified and comes to the emergency department as well. the uh, blood bank is notified before the person arrives so that uh, emergency blood transfusions can be made available. We have a, a separate OR staff that comes avail- comes uh, that is made available as well. And so you we're know, all set to go so at that time. So, right, yes. right. So, mm-hmm. so you're ready to, you know, whatever the team needs to be, you guys have been pre-alerted, of course, by the ambulance bringing in. So what, what dictates a trauma? Okay. It, it depends. I, the, there are certain criteria mm. that are required to call what's called, a, say, a level one trauma code. That's the, uh, that represents a person who has the uh, highest acuity of injury. Mm. Um, if there's a lot of bleeding, if the person is uh, unconscious, if the person has uh, a lot of blood at the scene of the, of the injury, uh, if uh, someone is thrown from a car or run over f- from a car, if um, there's been a traumatic amputation, um, if there's any uh, difficulty with bre- with breathing, those are all the criteria that alert us that this is someone who is very severely injured and requires the highest level of care immediately. So that is a, a level one trauma code, and those are the, the people who uh, for whom we are uh, ready uh, within 15 minutes. And then there are uh, a lot of other people who may have some um, injuries which are less severe. Someone maybe has been riding a bike and fell off and has sprained an ankle or someone maybe who has a cooking uh, injury and has a a scald burn. Uh, Certainly uh, someone who is injured and needs to be seen uh, soon, but not someone uh, whose life is at risk. Right. Right. And I'll tell you, when that overhead page goes off, all of us in the hospital, our hearts just stop, right? You just, you pause for a minute. We all say a little prayer and we pause because it's it's scary to hear it. For sure. We also, um, you know, what I want to talk about is you mentioned the time element that's involved in, in, you know, within 15 minutes. And I'm sure that's part of what you look at for quality and process. That's right. That's right. That's evaluated um, by our trauma coordinator every morning when she comes in. Roxanne Tapley, the first thing she does is uh, review all of the documentation uh, of the uh, trauma patients uh, who came in overnight. So that's every day. That's every- I meet with her when wow. I get there. We usually meet at around 8 o'clock in her office. We go over all of the trauma patients who were admitted. We go over all the documentation. Um, and then I, I look at their x-rays, and then I go and I round on those patients. I have to say, I mean, that's pretty impressive because you're you're reviewing every single case. So it's real time. So any improvements yeah. that need to be made, don't wait a month for a monthly no, no. meeting. Don't wait. They happen in real time. No, no, no. It's very important to to do it to do whatever needs to be done, whatever communication is done on the same day, so that every, the all of the uh, information is fresh, and so that uh, whatever needs to be fixed can be ready to be fixed the following day if it happens right. again. What's What's super interesting to me is you know you were here 
um, at St. Mary's, of course, and then, you know, went on to do all your further education and coming back to St. Mary's, like you said, and looking at the trauma program that had been under Dr. Zuri for quite a long time, there's been quite a few additions of specialties that weren't available in this area before that I'm sure help you in your work. Yes. Yes. And what do you think yeah. has been our biggest area of improvement or resource um, for you? Well, I, I, the emergency department has developed greatly over the past 20 of years. Uh, Dr. Peter Jacoby, who led the department for uh, most of that time, has done an incredible job. And that's now been handed over to our new uh, chair of emergency medicine, who is also uh, someone who really cares about trauma and who is really easy to work with and who uh, has the same vision that I do. Um, what uh, is also extremely important is to have very strong orthopedics because ortho- fractured bones are very common. Right. We have uh, incredibly good orthopedic support 24-7. We have a, a board-certified orthopedic surgeon who is available uh, day and night, and they will come to the emergency department, splint a fracture, or take a person, say, who has an open fracture and needs to go to the operating room uh, within eight hours. That person is taken within eight hours. Um, We have a very good blood bank, which uh, has uh, everything that we need, not just blood factors, but other coagulation factors that that are available at level one trauma centers. We have all of that available at St. Mary's Hospital, and we use it. Uh, What uh, I also am very impressed with is the level of nursing care in our intensive care unit. It's honestly, it's the best I've ever seen. Oh, that's so Uh, wonderful. The nurses, uh, they they function um, on a very high level. Uh, They know their patients well. They care about the patient and they understand the pathophysiology very well. And they've been through a lot this past year and a half almost as we they've been through a lot and they are incredibly resilient I you know I just I can't say enough about our nurses I mean being a St. Mary's nurse myself I mean I'm a little bit biased but you know I I truly believe you know somebody has said to me oh that you know hospitals have changed so much there's such a there's so many new people new faces I go nah look a little deeper we still have a lot of our old nurses here passing the torch yes Exactly. I say they're not old faces, they're familiar faces. <laughs> That's right. Especially myself, since I remembered you as a resident. It took me a minute. But as I remembered you, I said, yes, I was here. I do remember you. And I worked on orthopedics, which kind of makes sense because you, of what where you were doing your residency. Um, when, we, when we look at the navigation of the patient, to the ICU. So you 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 are involved in the care of the patient in D right to in the ED right to surgery and then you follow that patient right to critical care. Yes, uh, trauma surgery is a specialty which is combined with surgical critical care hmm. because most severely injured trauma patients they don't just go home or go to a regular surgical floor they often need uh, several days of intensive care so the fellowship is, is a combination of trauma surgery and surgical critical care and it walk, works hand in hand with some of the other specialties yes. that that you may need to integrate in the care of that patient during the time yes. that you're doing surgery yes and when the patient then when the patient is, you know, moves to the floor, do you still continue to follow that patient? It, 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 uh, it, I, 
I oversee all the trauma patients. I know what goes on with them. Mm. Um, by the time the trauma patients go to the floor, they're usually eating and walking right. and really uh, are either awaiting uh, going to a rehab facility right. or just waiting to go home in a day or two. Do you notice any differences coming from Brooklyn, any differences in the type of traumas that we see here yes. in Waterbury? Yes. You know, in Brooklyn, we had a lot of uh, what's called penetrating trauma, a lot of gunshot wounds and stab mm-hmm. wounds. Uh, we do see we do see that at St. Mary's. I was I was I've actually been surprised at uh, the number of penetrating trauma that we have. But what we have here at St. Mary's, uh, which is more typical for um, trauma centers that are not in major cities, is more blunt trauma: mm-hmm. car crashes, falls, falls from ladders. Mm-hmm. Um, and because we're, our hospital is right on the highway, uh, any of the major traumas on the highway come directly to us. So we see uh, typically more blunt trauma than penetrating trauma. So as we, as we talk about blunt trauma, some of that is so important with your community education. So I'd love to focus back on that and some of the things that, as a trauma surgeon, you find incredibly important to get out to the general pl- public to prevent some of these situations. Yes. And yes. one of the programs that you're involved in, I believe this is another national program, it could be, but it's called um, Not One More. Yes, and not one more. Is it's actually a statewide program in okay. Connecticut, which is uh, headed by uh, the trauma people at Hartford Hospital, and this uh, they have invited all of the trauma surgeons in Connecticut to participate, and uh, we participated right away. This is uh, basically a community awareness uh, program to remind people: yes, you can enjoy alcohol, but don't drive. Don't use heavy machinery uh, because you'll hurt yourself and you'll hurt other innocent people. How many of the blunt traumas you see involve? Do you, is there a large number that we see that yes, come over in? over half of? Oh. I mean, there are, at our trauma center, the st- statistics are pretty similar to others. Over half of uh, our trauma patients have uh, some type of positive uh, drug or alcohol uh, level in their blood. Oh. That's so sad. And now that we've opened up the state to medical marijuana and recreational marijuana, how, are you concerned? Yes, yes. You know, I, I, I don't mean to make a judgment call. Right. I don't have a problem. I don't have a problem with anyone smoking marijuana, but uh, I think it's particularly important for for us and you know for this i take this to heart as the mother of a teenager mm-hmm. um so often when something becomes legal um we think it's okay and that it's harmless and, and that's a misconception and you know i think there's no harm in an adult maybe smoking marijuana at home enjoying the nature enjoying music whatever <laughs> enjoying company with their friends that's people make their own decisions but uh there, the scientific data is overwhelmingly clear that marijuana is very harmful to the developing brain. So for young people going back to school who uh, are under peer pressure to smoke marijuana and who maybe can be lulled into a false sense of security, um, it can be dangerous because it's been shown to impair cognitive function. Um, the students will do worse on exams. Yeah. Uh, they will not meet their goals. 
they will not be able to concentrate as well. And whatever career goals some young people have in the fu- for their future may not happen simply because of smoking marijuana. Yeah. And, you know, we the young brain is just much more sensitive to the effects of marijuana than the adult brain. And, you know, we look at, you know, and, and you pair that with, you know, alcohol use, too. Sometimes they're done at the same time. So which yeah. which which doubles the impairment for these young adults. And, I, you know, I'm so fearful of kids driving anyway. I know how we were as young adults. And when I was a kid, drinking age was 18, which was super scary because kids were drinking at 15 and 16. And, you know, just I'm sure that all moms and dads cringe as their kids go out the door. So this no, not one more program is an awareness program to hopefully get out to all community, you know, including our young adults. Yes, and, you know, what we do affects other people. Uh, we take care of trauma patients who were innocently driving home sober or innocently walking sober, and they were badly injured by a drunken driver in a very random event. You know, is, a commu- is someone involved in getting community awareness out? What do you think the best way to educate our young kids are about this? Um, Honestly, I think this has actually been looked at, and the best way is for the parents to talk to their children. Mm. That's what's been shown, Um, and for teachers to talk to their students. But really what's in the home seems to uh, carry the most weight. Right Now, we can do all kinds of other things, like what we're doing right now, speaking about it on the radio, or having some type of, um, you know, mass communication, which not one more is doing, but it really is... uh, very useful uh having just read this having there are some psychologists who have have actually studied just the question that you're asking it's really having uh, an an adult person uh, take the time to talk to a younger person and, and and tell them what can be harmful and ask them what their goals are in life and guide them in how they can achieve them right to be open and honest and open the dialogue and not ignore it Exactly. I think what happens is I think parents just have so much in their busy lives of balancing home and work. And, you know, they do need to take the time because these are important conversations. Yeah. Well, and also, I think a lot of teenagers are they don't necessarily want to talk to they don't want to hear it or they they, you know, they think they know more than they may actually do. But. Um, they, they do need to hear it, even if they don't want to hear it. Absolutely, absolutely, and hopefully, and, and I think they have to some degree. Some of the the high schools have brought it into their curriculum to talk to kids about substance mm-hmm. abuse and and the dangers. And hopefully, you know, sometimes you get a really good mentor as a, a teacher, and and yes. it's helpful for them to to do the same because the more you give it to them, the more they're hearing it from a multiple level of people yes that's true so some of the other pieces you know when i when i opened the program tonight i talked about how the beautiful fall weather is coming and it's and you know more and more people love i mean the hazy hot and humid days people tend to love to go to the beach and but when we start having these fall days and this beautiful foliage connecticut is known for beautiful joy rides with families tops down on cars and people riding their motorcycles in beautiful, beautiful roads and helmets. Yeah. And there's so many, there's so many motorcycle 
you know, motorcyclists I see out on the road without a helmet. Yeah. Well, motorcyclists don't like to be told to wear a helmet. <laughs> but, and you know, I, I would love to ride a motorcycle myself, but I, I don't because it's just not. Um, it's associated with injury. Now, there's there's a huge difference between wearing a helmet and not wearing a helmet when your head hits the ground. Mm. And it doesn't require a whole lot of, you know, review of literature about this. Um, People who aren't wearing a helmet and who get into a motorcycle crash, they do badly. Many many do very badly. Um, Those injuries could be averted could be prevented by simply wearing a helmet because wearing a helmet doesn't just protect the brain it also protects the upper portion of the cervical spine Hmm. you're so you are so right and it's so scary you know to see them whipping around a corner or flying down a highway and and even kids riding these these um mopeds on yes. these backcountry roads. It's not just the motorcycles. It's these all-terrain vehicles the kids are riding without protective gear. Yes. Yeah, they can be very dangerous. Now, as a matter of fact, I saw a story, and it's not, you know, I want to talk about bicyclists because there's so many people that also ride a traditional bicycle that are not wearing helmets because, you know, especially women, you know, we don't want to mess our hair up and go for a little bike ride. I see people in my, I live in a 55 and older complex and I see a lot of women and men riding their bicycles right throughout our neighborhood. Just because you're riding a bicycle within the neighborhood does not make you immune to falling, hit you know, hitting your head, hitting a bump, and and having your head hit the pavement. How important is just for to, for an adult, not only children, but to have the helmet safety? Equally important, because uh, just as you say, you can hit a rock and be down on the ground, and it doesn't take a big hit to the head right. to cause uh, a significant uh, injury to the brain. And helmets protect so, you, but you could still get an injury, but it'll be less. That's, that's absolutely correct, but the injury will be much less severe or not at all. There was a gentleman today on the news. Um, he They were doing a story on him, and he was an avid bike rider. He was my age. He was 61, and he was training for a race with his son, and he was well ahead of his son, or his son had passed him. He was training, and he hit a tree, but he had his helmet on, and he couldn't get up. And he said, well, someone will come along. And before he knew it, he passed out. Um, Long story short, he did end up with a spinal cord injury. um, But he's coming back. And they said the helmet saved his life. But you could see the dent in the helmet to just think of how fast he was probably going. Exactly. Or what that would have done to his skull. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's just so, so scary. Well, you know, when we, we also look at, you know, some of the things that your trauma surgeon will see and some of the education you do, you know, we're not immune to those, you know, especially that now we're out of the summer, but during the summer months is drownings. Can you speak to that a little bit? And maybe some education you do in the community regarding that? Yes. Yes. Um, You know, drownings are much more commonly seen in in the summer, Mm. but we see them all year round. And drownings in winter are particularly concerning because the patients, people are also coming in severely hypothermic. Mm. Uh, This is 
particularly preventable in in children, mm-hmm. because most children who suffer drowning uh, accidents, um, it, it, it it had more to do with lack of supervision. Right. So, for uh, people who have swimming pools, or bring their children to lakes or the ocean, those children always need to be observed uh, by an adult who can swim. I know my poor grandchildren. My grandson just turned seven. I made him wear his swimmies all vacation. He was so mad at me. <laughs> I said, Polly, I'm sorry. Your Gigi wants you to be safe. And all the other kids didn't have swimmies on, but I made him wear swimmies. Well, in the ocean, you can't tell because they're starting to walk. And, yeah. you know, you just don't know where it's going to drop off. And, you know, you just, you've got to be super, super careful. And, you know, I just, you have to have all eyes on them at all times. Yes. Do you, do you see um, in the, some, in the winter time these types of drownings or, or, you know, people that get submerged or more uh, if they're ice skating or on a pond that they shouldn't be on? Uh, it's more likely to happen if somebody is a, at a body of water where mm. they're asked not to be because there's no supervision. Right. Uh, and there's nobody to, to get them out of the water. In time. One of the other pieces that you work on is your, you know, is, is teaching our residents and the residency program. How, how does that work for you? What is your biggest goal with the residents? Well, it's one of the actually one of the requirements of a, a trauma program to to teach trauma mm-hmm. to uh, to anyone in the hospital who's willing to hear and who's interested. And we fortunately have a lot of people in our hospital who who care about trauma. Mm-hmm. We have uh, a general surgery residency program, uh, which is a six year program. There's one year of research required, mm-hmm. and a number of our residents actually have an interest in trauma. So I I do at least one trauma lecture per week, and I just do some, you know, bedside didactic teaching uh, throughout the course of the week. And do the general residents accompany you on a trauma? Yes. Right? So that's, I mean, it's hands-on learning for them. They they accompany you in the OR, they accompany you in, you know, the ICU, so they follow the entire process. Yes, and it actually has been shown to provide better care right. for for patients because there's always a young physician at the bedside 24 hours a day, seven days a week, following labs, following vital signs, calling the attending if there are any issues, checking CAT scans, checking x-rays. You know, I would say to you, I'm sure we are very blessed at St. Mary's, and I'm sure you could speak to that. You think of a small inner city hospital, but we have an incredible, you know, surgery residency program as well as medical. Yes. And they are like sponges. And we've been very blessed because we've been able to hire a lot of those coming out of the residency program. They've stayed on with our medical group, which is really exciting. Some of them had done fellowships, but they come back. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like Dr. Shohan yes. Shetty. He did a little relish, oh, yeah. fellowship. He came back. Dr. Macaroon, he came back. <laughs> Which is exciting to be able to, to say that they want to be back here and give back to this community. I know Dr. Alexander Palesti, who's one of our general surgeons, he actually, his dad was a doctor with us. So he was, as a young kid, in our hospital. Yes. Well, St. Mary's is a very nice place for for a physician to work. I mean, it has a there's a very professional attitude. Mm. Uh, people are friendly, 
and the hospital is, is very efficient. And, and the OR, I, I, I like it particularly because the OR is so efficient. The OR is incredible, and the leadership yeah. of Doc, of Joan yeah. Thompson, who, who's yeah. the, she's absolutely amazing. If you know, if anyone on this line is, you know, hearing us, or I, I can't plug Joan Thompson enough. She is an amazing nurse, and our director of the OR, and she will do anything for any physician and any patient. Yes. Day and night. So she's had to make a few changes to be able to um, accommodate some of what you've brought to us. What are some of the things of the changes we had to make in the OR? Oh, well, for one, actually something that I just uh, I gave a little talk uh, to the OR nurses today about is a new procedure that we'll be doing, which is called rib plating or rib fixation. Uh, rib fractures are one of the most common uh, injuries that uh, we see at a trauma center. And not all, but some people who have rib fractures will actually benefit from having a plate uh placed over the fractured rib in order to keep that rib aligned. Hmm. And we know now from uh, a lot of data that, uh, that that reduces pain and it reduces hospital stay. So D- this is a procedure. The hospital is in the process of uh, buying the equipment. Uh, it's already been approved. It, it actually arrived a couple of days ago. So we'll be able, uh, before that, um, people were transported to Hartford for this procedure, but we'll be able to offer that to our patients. That's incredible. And is this, some, is this something you've been able to do um, that you've done in your other trauma centers? Yes, yes. So will the plate stay there forever? Like, can you explain that to the, the community? Yes, yes. the plates, the, they're metal plates. Uh, just as if someone has a broken arm or a broken leg, sometimes a rod is placed. Mm-hmm. Those plates, the technology now uh, requires that the plates stay there forever. But there's a new technology that will be available perhaps in the next year or so. I've already seen it, <laughs> uh, which is an, a plate which is absorbable after about six months. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's that's super interesting. Well, I've been hearing about the rib plating because I, I do a weekly call with Joan and Dr. Corvo, and this is something they've been talking about. So I'm so excited that, you know, Trinity is supporting this and that we will be able to provide this. And I'm sure you see a lot of rib fractures. Yes, we've seen uh, in the past, since January, I think we've seen about 40 or 50 rib fractures. Wow. And these are from trauma. Yes. Are we seeing them? And what's what? Do you, what's the biggest cause usually with the trauma? With uh, car crashes, yeah. falls from ladders. Falls from ladders, and and you yeah. know, in the car crashes, do the um, airbags sometimes cause them? The airbags are they they generally don't cause them. The airbags are a huge help. They reduce. Hmm. They don't prevent injuries, but they reduce the severity of the injury. What are, what are some of the other? Um, things that you see coming down the pike or things that you are going to be bringing to um, our trauma center that you can well, think of? Uh, one thing is uh, for, not this is not only for trauma patients, but also for some other medical patients who may need tracheostomies. Mm. Typically, they've been, they're done in the operating room, but uh, we will be able to do them at the bedside. So they'll just be done in, in a more rapid and efficient way. Um, uh, another thing is to provide teaching and advanced trauma life support, uh, which is a, a national program to for all healthcare providers. Uh, so we can provide that to nurses and physician assistants uh, in in the Waterbury area, including our medical group. 
Yes. Which will be huge. And we're always looking for educational yeah. opportunities, you know, for and the, the third. And the third is uh, disaster management. Um, you know, we, we live in a time where um, there's growing social unrest yeah. and uh, changes, strange weather changes where um, all of us need to be prepared for uh, either natural or man-made disasters. So there, um, there are plans for the American College of Surgeons provides a disaster course and it's something that uh, we plan to in the future to provide uh, at St. Mary's Hospital. So we have that we're prepared. We have the resources ready, which we have been to a lot of degree. I mean, you know, when I look at, I look at um, anytime we have a major storm, of course, there's a, there's definitely a huge plan in place, but you know, COVID was, a disaster. I think of it, you know, the pandemic was it was an ongoing yes. disaster. And watching our facility, our hospital, and our system, Trinity Health of New England, just deploy what they needed to deploy and mm-hmm. and turn resources every which way, resources we didn't even know we had, but and people stepping up to create some on the spot care for patients was just amazing. Yes. Now, speaking of COVID, as you know, just asking you as a physician, where are we with um, testing our patients for surgeries, um, testing our patients that are going to be admitted? Are those the patients that are testing? Is there any differences that are happening? Well, for any person uh, at any hospital in the U.S. right now uh, who is going to undergo an elective operation, uh, something, an operation which is not emergent, uh, an operation which is scheduled for days or weeks in the future, uh, every person has to be tested for COVID. Uh, if the COVID test is negative, the operation can proceed. If the COVID test is positive, then the, uh, the patient waits until COVID is resolved and the COVID test is then repeated, and once it's negative, the operation can take place. Now, for for our trauma patients, it's it's a different story because we really don't have the time to test for COVID, and also, if if the person needs an operation, they're going to get an emergent operation, whether they're COVID positive or COVID negative. So uh, the Trinity system has done a very good job in um, making clear what is required and Mm -hmm. what we do for Every trauma patient who we see in the emergency department, we're required to wear N95 masks mm. uh, covered by the regular blue surgical mask because we don't know the status of the uh, the COVID status of the patient, right. and the patient doesn't usually doesn't know either. So we uh, we proceed as if the patient perhaps is COVID positive. Right. And then in the first few hours of the person's hospitalization, we will get a COVID test and we get very rapid results. So usually by a few hours later, we know if the person uh, is COVID positive or COVID negative. Right. So important. And all, it's so important because that immediate care of the patient is the most important thing. And you yeah. treat them as if they were positive and provide the care. Exactly. They get the, the exact same treatment regardless of COVID status. Right. We don't know the COVID status. We, we treat the person, and then we worry about the COVID status later, but we wear N95 masks. And fortunately, uh, we are vaccinated ourselves, so right. there's uh, a, a very, very, very low risk of transmission from 
physician to patient. Which is, you know, that I, I think that, you know, that's that during the whole during COVID, during its height, um, that was the piece, you know, people were afraid to come back to the hospital, you know, and yeah. people pushed their care off. And mm-hmm. it's, it was incredibly sad, you know, mm-hmm. that people didn't get the care they need. Now, you know, we see things easing up. We definitely see it's safer. Um, even with the Delta variant, I know that we've been incredibly, I go to the hospital every single day and I feel incredibly safe. I do too. Mm-hmm. You know, I definitely feel incredibly safe. So, what I want to try to do is is bring this back um, to center and just you know before we end the program, talk about what are the most important things you want to share tonight, just to reemphasize what we've talked about and maybe talk about the most important things um, that we could leave our audience with. Ooh, you know, I, I just. I have to say I have a, a, a particular fondness of St. Mary's Hospital because it's the institution that made me a surgeon. But I, I, I'm just astonished at how good the hospital has become. When I, you know, I, I'm lucky that I can make comparisons to other places where I've been. Um, it, we're extremely, for, from a trauma standpoint, it's extremely lucky to have a chairman of surgery who uh, did a trauma critical care fellowship. You know, Dr. Corvo, uh, I think he's largely known for robotics and uh, laparoscopy, but when I talk to him about a trauma patient or about any issue uh, related to trauma, it's so easy because he completely understands it and it's intuitive to him. Uh, that's one thing. Uh, second is that the entire department of surgery um, uh, the people who work in our office have a very keen interest in trauma. Mm-hmm. We have residents, uh, uh, we have a number of residents who have an interest in trauma. So we're, we really are largely a trauma-focused uh, department. Uh, that said, as you mentioned, uh, Dr. Palesti uh, is a, a, a trained surgical oncologist. We have Dr. Miller, who is uh, a nationally no- known surgical oncologist. We have Dr. Shetty, who's very um, well known for bariatrics and laparoscopy, uh, so we have a, we have a very good and Dr. Macaron the same. So we have a, a very good team of surgeons, and we have Dr. Zarif, who is a solid, extremely seasoned, all-round general surgeon, which is what a trauma program needs. So uh, I, I, I'm just extremely happy to be here, and uh, yeah. I grew up in, in Connecticut, and uh, I love this area and. I'm proud to to be working at St. Mary's. Well, to have you back and having us connect uh, this program to our community, and so the community has a better awareness of what we do and and what they can feel safe and know and trust, I think is so super important. But we never had a, a... a program such as this, a trauma program, do the community outreach it's doing now. So I think for us, it's also been an incredible win for us to be able to have you and um, and kind of push us to that next level. I think we were good, but I think that we will become exceptional now, which is very exciting for us. Well, thank you, and uh, also largely with your effort and what you're doing. Oh, thank you. I mean, I, I'm a St. Mary's and Waterbury cheerleader, so um, oh, yeah. yeah, I definitely um, an incredibly St. Mary's Waterbury proud, and so I'm always excited for us to be able to bring um, the level of expertise to this show um, 
and and kind of show us off a little bit. So you've allowed me the opportunity, the time to do so. And I know your schedule is so busy. So we want to thank you, you know, so much for participating with us tonight in the program. And um, some of the programs that we mentioned tonight will can can people get to them on our website, like the Stop the Bleed and not one more? Yes. Yeah, they could just type them in and there'll be a link. I will uh, make sure I give out our website um, after you leave me so that people can link on um, and learn a little bit more. And hopefully we'll be able to come out into the community and do some in person in in the future. Yes. You know, as COVID restrictions ease and now now that schools are open again, we hope to go to some some high schools and and start teaching that. uh, High school students can go home and show their family. And as COVID restrictions continue to lighten up, then we can go out to community centers and to the general public and have the general public come to St. Mary's for seminars. We have um, good space to do this in. Yeah, we have that beautiful conference center that definitely holds a lot of people and uh, will provide us with the the, uh, resources to do so. So, Dr. Biggs, I cannot thank you enough for joining me tonight. And if you want to learn Oh, absolutely. And if you want to learn more about Dr. Biggs, and our programs, please visit our web- website, um, trinityhealthofne.org. If you type in in the search bar, just put in Carla Biggs, all her information will come up and you can uh, learn more about her and her uh, history and how she came back to St. Mary's Hospital. So Dr. Biggs, again, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Have a great night. You too. So I want to uh, make sure that I don't leave tonight without letting you know. You can definitely type in um, information on our Facebook page. If you go to uh, St. Mary's Facebook page and you like us, uh, like St. Mary's Hospital and Trinity Health of New England, you can follow a lot of um, what we just spoke of because our incredible Stephanie Velikas, who is our communication specialist, will have this information um, on our website um, on our Facebook page. Also follow us on Twitter and um, Instagram, all those different social media platforms that Stephanie always wants me to promote. It's so true because you can definitely learn more about what Dr. Biggs sp- spoke of tonight. And the Stop the Bleed program is a national program. And the Not One More is a statewide program, which I learned more about tonight. I didn't realize that it was started here in the state of Connecticut. So you can definitely type those into your search bar on trinityhealthofne.org um, and be able to access that. So just a little highlight quickly for some upcoming program that we're going to be having uh, to prepare you for our next shows. So yes, next month is Breast Cancer Awareness Month in October. So we will be having on our chief of um, breast um, surgery at St. Mary's. Um, and I think she's a very well-known name in this community, Dr. Beth Sealing. Uh, she will be joining us. Tommy's telling me, Johnny's telling me I only have one more minute. So we have to go quickly. So um, definitely Definitely tune in. I will give you upcoming dates. I believe she's going to be the 27th of September, but I will let you know um, on my next program. Um, we will also be talking with um, some more um, about our new vascular program that we're going to have at St. Mary's and our limb salvage program. So a lot of good stuff coming your way. Um, I hope that this was great information for you. Again, if you need to learn more, go on our website, trinityhealthofne.org. This is Robin Sills for St. Mary's Hospital. Hospital Trinity Health of New England. Have a great night.
This is WATR 1320 AM, 97.7 FM, Waterbury. Translator station, W249DY. He's not giving up. I'm Lisa Lacerra, Fox News. President Biden says he may go it alone if there's no consensus in Congress on police reform. The president is signaling more executive actions could be on the way after a bipartisan group of lawmakers ended talks on police reform legislation. In a statement, the president said the White House will consult with civil rights and law enforcement communities, as well as victims' families, to find a path forward. The president also said he still hopes to sign into law a comprehensive and meaningful police reform bill that honors the name and memory of George Floyd, a black man who died in police custody last year, sparking violent protests. At the White House, Rachel Sutherland. The CDC advisory panel is now considering the question of COVID booster shots and who should get them. If a third dose actually generates sufficient antibody to the wild type or vaccine virus, there's an expectation that it will restore protection against variants of concern uh, both now and into the future. Dr. Bill Gruber, head of research and development at Pfizer, last week an FDA panel recommended boosters for those over 65 and people at high risk for severe illness, but voted down the idea of boosters for the general public. Day four for searchers in Florida as they hunt for Brian Laundrie, considered a person of interest in the death of his girlfriend, Gabby Petito. Live teams as well as technicians with side sonar, which can detect large objects underneath the water, as well as cadaver dogs all combing through thousands of acres here in this nature reserve. But the person of interest they are looking for has yet to be discovered. Fox's Phil Keating in Venice, Florida. Petito's remains were positively identified yesterday after being recovered over the weekend in Grand Teton National Park in Wyoming. A federal judge has dismissed some of the biggest remaining lawsuits over Ohio State's failure to stop sexual abuse. America is listening to Fox News. Attorney Joe Cordell. New school, new job, new home. Change is hard and can